Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. This week we have a guest essay by Dan Lewis, who is senior pastor of Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan. The title of his essay is The Gospel of Our Weakness and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 9th, 2006. The meaning of virtue was one of the prominent ethical discussions in the writings of ancient intellectuals. So-called virtue lists, for example, abound in classical literature. They typically recommend such traits as piety, reverence, excellence, practical knowledge, and patience. One quality of character, however, that you never find in the Greco-Roman virtue lists is the trait of weakness. You probably have noticed how often this quality of weakness was mentioned by Paul in his two letters to the Corinthians. There we read from Paul, We are weak. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? If I boast, I will boast about the things that show my weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. Not only does Paul champion weakness in himself, he extols the weakness of Christ. We read, for example, for to be sure, Christ was crucified in weakness. And then he says about all of us, likewise, we are weak in him. The point is this, true holiness is not a matter of personal power. It is in fact a matter of God's power in the midst of personal weakness. The city of Corinth, like many ancient cities, was inundated with the images of power. The impressive temple of Apollo under the brow of the Acropolis greeted all visitors to the city. The biennial, the biennial Isthmian Games featured contests of athleticism and feats of power. Corinth, the master of two harbors, was an economic trade center and power broker for much of the Mediterranean world. Hence, it's not surprising that the cult of power was alive and well amongst Corinth's citizenry and even among the Corinthian Christians who responded to Paul's preaching. Sometimes the exaltation of power infiltrated even their understanding of the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's almost certain that Paul's detractors in Corinth boasted of superior ecstatic experiences, since Paul chose such an experience for his own climatic boast. His words, I will go on to visions and revelations, indicate as much. And we know from 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church valued highly the more sensational kinds of spiritual experiences. The ecstatic experience that Paul chose to recount occurred some 14 years earlier, and it happened to someone Paul does not name but says he knew. But it becomes clear that the person of whom Paul speaks is Paul himself, since still in the same context he shifts from the language of the man to the language me.
There is no way to directly identify this experience with any known occasion recorded in the book of Acts or in Paul's correspondence. Some scholars have suggested his vision on the Damascus Road as a possibility, while others suggest his trance in the Jerusalem temple, and still others his near death in Lystra. But none of these have any undeniable claims. In this experience, whatever it was, Paul was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise. Both of these terms are known from the Jewish and Christian pseudepigrapha. Heaven, the abode of God, was depicted as a multi-layered place, usually in a sevenfold way. By entering the third heaven, one could stand near the Lord. Paradise was a Persian loanword meaning garden, and in Jewish apocalyptic literature, it represented the home of the departed righteous. The irony of this ecstatic experience that Paul experienced is sharply upheld in that in it Paul heard things that were not possible to describe nor even permissible to repeat. It's a further irony for Paul to say then, I will boast about a man like that, but not about myself, since that man was in fact Paul. Instead, Paul contents himself to boast of his weakness. If he wished to follow the lead of his opponents in boasting of transcendent experiences, he could do so truthfully if he had wanted, but he declines. Paul saw an inner connection between the ecstatic experience he had just recounted and another personal situation, this time a debilitating one. Paul suffered from some deep personal affliction, so deep that he compares it to a scallops, that is, a thorn or a splinter. While Paul obviously uses a metaphor, the reference is ambiguous. Tertullian thought it was a physical affliction. Augustine and Luther said it was a temptation. Arguments have been put forth in favor of migraine headaches, epilepsy, convulsions, ophthalmia, malaria, a speech impediment, rheumatism, fever, and even leprosy. Whatever the case, Paul certainly understood his experience in a Job-like context. Just as Job's affliction was dealt by Satan, but permitted by God, so Paul understands his own affliction to be a blow from his arch enemy, yet at the same time allowed by God in order to prevent any conceit on his part. If ecstatic experiences might tend towards conceit, the direct refusal by God to answer Paul's prayer for healing drove him toward humility. Three times, we read, he prayed for deliverance, but God declined, only letting Paul know that saving grace was enough and that divine power is brought to perfection in human weakness. In this divine no, Paul understood more clearly the nature of God's power. If his opponents boasted of spectacular things, Paul was obliged to boast of his weaknesses, not because weakness in itself was glorious, but because it was the arena in which Christ's power was most clearly displayed. Therefore, Paul says, I delight in sickness, insult, pressing needs, 
persecution, and distress. His final summation is without question one of the most quotable quotes in the Bible. When I am weak, then I am strong. What a foil for his opponent's misguided philosophy, which suggested that when I am strong, then I am strong. Holiness often is confused with personal power. A holy person is perceived as one who is disciplined. He or she is a person with a rigorous code of conduct. Holiness is believed to be the expression of religious fervor, the measurement of oneself and others by a demanding litany of religious criteria. But the problem with this way of seeing holiness is that it misses the very heart of what holiness is all about in the first place. Perhaps that's why Paul says so much about weakness when writing to the Corinthians. As Greeks, the Corinthians took great pride in their intellectual and cultural history. They were especially enamored with the classical virtues of wisdom and power. In their approach to the Christian life, they championed all the ancient Greek virtues that were part of their heritage. Paul, to the contrary, knew that the message of the cross put all virtues in a very different light. The cross was shameful. To the Jew, it was the symbol of God's curse. To the Greek, it was the ignomy of public disgrace. To the Roman, it was the death of traitors and rebels. Nothing in the whole structure of ancient culture, either Jewish, Greek, or Roman, prepared anyone for the preaching of the cross. It was a stumbling block to Jews and absurd to the Greeks. But to those whom God had called, it was Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. In a contemporary culture that stresses personal autonomy and social advancement, even in a Christian subculture that at times succumbs to the siren song of political clout, let us more directly conform our mindset to the gospel of our weakness. And now for further reflection. What are some of the ways that we worship power? What are some of the ways that we see the weakness of Christ? Thirdly, are there some wrong ways of recommending the virtue of weakness that would actually be unhealthy? And finally, consider the classic text upon which this essay is based, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 to 10, and especially Paul's words there, when I am weak, then I am strong. Pastor Dan Lewis of Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan. For book reviews this week, I review a book by Stephen Kinzer called Overthrow, America's Century of Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq. New York Times Book, 2006, 385 pages. Even though Saddam Hussein distinguished himself as one of history's most ruthless dictators, many Americans expressed surprise that the United States preemptively invaded a sovereign nation to depose a head of state, 
I know that I did. In fact, there was nothing unusual about American regime change, according to Stephen Kinzer. Only historical ignorance, amnesia, or patriotic naivete could allow someone like me to enjoy such a pleasant myth. Kinzer has reported from more than 50 countries as a foreign correspondent, and in this book he examines the 14 times in the last century that the United States has toppled foreign governments. Here's the list. Hawaii, 1893. Cuba, 1898. Puerto Rico, 1898. The Philippines, 1902. Nicaragua, 1910. Honduras, 1911. Iran, 1953. Guatemala, 1954. Vietnam, 1963. Chile, 1973. Grenada, 1983. Panama, 1989. Afghanistan, 2001. Iraq, 2003. Specialists will debate the complex nuances of outright coups, covert activities, mixed motives, and historical consequences, but by giving us the big picture, Kinzer reminds us that Americans' geopolitics is hardly benign or altruistic. No nation in modern history, he writes, has done this so often, in so many places, so far from its own shores. America has deposed foreign governments for many reasons. We have claimed to civilize others, Christianize them, protect them, and liberate them. We have also ousted presidents and prime ministers to guard economic interests, including those of corporations like United Fruit and IT&T, or to control another country's natural resources, especially when they had the audacity to try to nationalize them for their own citizens, to maintain and spread our power, and to combat enemy ideologies. We have employed Machiavellian means to accomplish regime change, including bold lies, doing the exact opposite of what we promised, ignoring international law, media censorship, terror, torture, rape, funneling hundreds of millions of dollars to rebel causes, and propaganda. Some of what we've done feels good and right, like reading Panama of Manuel Noriega. But a major theme of Kinzer's book is, is the law of unintended consequences. Invading other countries has almost always radicalized extreme groups, fanned the flames of nationalism, and fomented anti-Americanism that has destabilized countries rather than strengthened them. Invading other countries, in fact, has more often than not weakened our own country. Since no country can resist our will to power, we have thus often been the victim of what Kinzer calls our own catastrophic success. Overthrow, America's century of regime change from Hawaii to Iraq by Stephen Kinzer. For film this week, I review a film from the year 2003 entitled Wheel of Time. I like to watch most anything by the documentary filmmaker Werner Herzog, 
and Wheel of Time was no exception. This film finds Herzog in Bodh Gaya, India, where tradition has it that the Buddha first found enlightenment 2,500 years ago under the bow tree. Every few years, a half million Buddhist pilgrims traveled to Bodh Gaya for a sacred rite convened by the Dalai Lama called the Kala Chakra, or the Wheel of Time. Pilgrims come from near and far, many by foot, making prostrations the length of the body the entire trip. One monk from Tibet took three years to travel the 3,000 miles, genuflecting the entire way. Others will make a hundred thousand of these prostrations once they arrive, a rite that takes about six weeks. Central to the series of religious activities is a mandala or sculpture made of colored sands that the monks craft from a large stencil. The intricate work of art is destroyed after the rites, the sand returned to the earth, a symbol that all is transitory. In one scene, the pilgrims circumambulate the 25-mile base of Mount Kailash, which is 22,000 feet high. Wheel of Time has less narration than other Herzog documentaries, leaving you to wonder what some of the throngs of worshippers are doing. Herzog is also much more circumspect with his typical critique, but the combination of color, scenery, history, religion, culture, and language make Wheel of Time a very good, if not a great, film. The Wheel of Time by Werner Herzog. For poetry this week, we've posted a marvelous poem by Theodore Rotka, who lived from 1908 to 1963. The title of the poem is My Papa's Waltz. The whiskey on your breath could make a small boy dizzy, but I hung on like death. Such waltzing was not easy. We romped until the pans slid from the kitchen shelf. My mother's countenance could not unfrown itself. The hand that held my wrist was battered on one knuckle. At every step you missed, my right ear scraped a buckle. You beat time on my head with a palm caked hard by dirt, then waltzed me off to bed, still clinging to your shirt. My Papa's Waltz by Theodore Reiki. And finally, an extra bonus this month, we have our monthly music review by David Werther of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. This week, David Werther reviews Mission of My Soul, the best of Peter Himmelmann. Mission of My Soul is a collection of 19 songs from the last 20 years by Peter Himmelmann ranging from his 1986 CD entitled This Father's Day to more recently in the year 2005 his CD Imperfect World. The theme running through these songs is awe and humility. Himmelman writes, do something that makes you cry, 
that makes you weep in awe. There is a state of humility where you can feel something coming from a dimension outside oneself. That recognition, that sense of awe, is what I use to make things, says Himmelman. Whether the song is acoustic, pop, or a hard-edged electric, the power of Himmelman's music is that it takes us to the place of humility where it originated. For example, while he calls his song about a woman with ALS, woman with the strength of 10,000 men, a memo to myself, in fact, the song becomes an occasion for putting our own selves on notice as we begin to be aware and even ashamed of our own ingratitude. In the song, Always in Disguise, we see our youthful delusions of grandeur dissipate, to be replaced by the wonder and weightiness of something as simple as a single kiss. The song Beneath the Damage and the Dust reminds us that the street person whose presence is so threatening to us was once a baby we would have longed to hold. While songs like Beneath the Damage and the Dust underscore the tragic aspects of life, songs like Mission of My Soul celebrate loving devotion, and I Feel Young Today is so exuberant that one feels ready to join the singer when he calls, Hey, run with me now right down to the sea. In the live version of the song Closer, from a show at the bottom line, we get a little window into the spontaneous and funny side of Himmelman's live shows. For example, his spur-of-the-moment lyrics and improvisation. Anyone who's been to a Himmelman concert has stories to tell. Once, when playing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Memorial Student Union, he ended his show by leading us out of the Union, singing and playing as he made his way down Langdon Street, till the show finally ended at the entrance of his hotel. If you are not familiar with Peter Himmelman's music, it may well be the result of, of his willingness to break the rules of rock stardom. According to these rules, artists live on the road to promote their latest recording. But as an observant Jew, Peter is more interested in keeping the Sabbath than in selling CDs, and so he does not perform on Friday nights. That observance may have gotten in the way of making him a household name, but it is certainly not his hurt, his creativity. If you go to his website at peterhimmelman.com, and I hope you will, you'll see that the CDs from which Mission of My Soul is cold hardly exhaust his creativity. There is also his work for the television show Judging Amy, movie scores, three children's CDs, and five CDs taken from the Himmel Vaults. Peter Himmelman, Mission of My Soul, the best of Peter Himmelman. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 9th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.